Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're having a, a, a great day so far. It's nice. It's one of those days that it's nice to not be at the tent, right? Some of you that haven't been around for the past year, you don't know that this time last year we were worshiping at a tent about a mile down the road. So it's nice to have, nice to have roofs, nice to have walls, nice to have heating, and it'll be fun to be outside for Christmas Eve too. It should be really beautiful. So this Christmas season, we have been talking about what Christmas means. And what we've said from the beginning is that Christmas is the story of God making a way to live together with his people. And we said last week that God, he doesn't give up and he doesn't settle. That he does whatever it takes, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always in forever love, right? Just like the Jesus Storybook Bible says, it's always working to be with us. And he's not just gonna settle for some type of a absentee father type of relationship with us. He wants to snuggle up with us. He wants to go on a walk with us. He wants to play wrestle with us, right? So we've been saying Christmas is the story or it's kind of the climax of, or not the climax, but one of the pinnacles of the story because that comes later. One of the pinnacles of the story of God doing whatever it takes, whatever he has to do to live together with his people. As you think about this past week, um, I see y'all looking at the, at the diagram on the screen. We started off this series by saying that in God's presence, Psalm 1611 says, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. And at God's right hand, there are pleasures forever. That the best experience in life, the most joyful experience in life is when we can be together with God. And sometimes we'll get a little taste of that. You know, I, I really enjoyed the, the Hogan's testimony a second ago. And I think you can kind of see, you can see both the joy and the longing if you listen really carefully to what they were saying, right? On the one hand, when we're out in nature, when we look up at the stars, when we're enjoying a meal with a good friend, then we, just have, we, we get a, a tiny little taste of what it's like to be together with our Father in heaven. On the other hand, we have this longing in our hearts. And like Carol was talking about, when we, when we experience the death of a loved one, when holiday plans are ruined by COVID, when relationships are difficult, we experience that longing in our hearts that something's just not right. And what that is is a longing to be with God in his place. And at the beginning of the story of the Bible, God's people experienced that in the Garden of Eden, right? But then we got kicked out because of our sin. And what we've been saying is that the Garden of Eden, you know, there, there's the old saying, you can, you, know, you can take the, you can take the, the humans out of the garden, but you can't take the garden out of the humans. Right? You can say you take the, the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Have y'all heard that before? Well, same idea here. The Garden of Eden is deep in our DNA. And no matter how good it is, in our hearts, we have this longing for something more. And that's a longing to be together with God. What we said is, if you look in Exodus, at Exodus 25, that God is after generations and generations and generations of not being together, of visiting sometimes, but not living together with his people. In Exodus chapter 25, you can go ahead and put the, the tabernacle up there. Are you good? Yeah, so what God does in the tabernacle is God is once again making a way 
to live together with his people. And what we talked about last week is that in lots of different ways, everything from the orientation to the furniture is designed to remind the people of the Garden of Eden. You have the, the, the menorah, which is kind of like the tree of life. You have the orientation, the east and the west. And you have the cherubim that are guarding the presence of God, guarding the way the tree of life, but then they open up to usher you into God's presence. All right, so the tabernacle is designed to remind us of the Garden of Eden. Well, let's look at Exodus chapter 40 this morning. If you have a Bible, um, we're not gonna put up on the screen. Just go ahead and turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 40. We're gonna skip ahead a little bit. We've been in uh, kind of around Exodus 25, 30, and that range. But today we're gonna take a, we're just gonna take a quick peek at what happens at the end of the book of Exodus. So Exodus chapter 40 so this is the last chapter in Exodus, so we're going to see kind of how the story ends. This isn't the last message we have in Exodus, but it's um, reading what happens at the very end is going to help us understand what God is doing in the tabernacle. Okay, so Exodus chapter 40 and verse 16. So remember God has given, given them the plans. He shows Moses on the mountain. He shows him this very specific blueprint of, of how the the tabernacle needs to be designed, and he says, you know, do this exactly as I have commanded you. Well, in chapter 40, verse 16, it says, this Moses did. What did he do? He did everything that God said, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Okay, so the tabernacle was set up. They did it. They, they, they had the holy place and the most holy place. They had the, they had the bread of the presence. They had the menorah. They had the altar of incense. They had the, the Ark of the Covenant with the atonement cover on it. They had the veil separating the holy of holies from the holy place. So they did it. And then skip ahead to verse, let's see, verse 33. It says, and he erected the court. So he already has the, has the tent up, the tent of the tabernacle. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Okay, so success. You ever had that experience where you're, you're building a house and then it's finished? Here's the house, we did it. We've been waiting for this for, you know, who knows how long, but it's finished. But look at what happens next. And remember, what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle, the, the literal, the, the word in the Hebrew language for tabernacle literally means the tent of meeting. And it's not a meeting where people go have a staff meeting or something. It's a meeting where God comes down to meet together with his people, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. Well, look at what happens in verse 34. So remember, there's the, there's the cloud of the glory of God, the cloud and the fire and the lightning up on the mountain, Mount Sinai. And in verse 34, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Okay, so the cloud, it's moving down from the mountain. And remember, the people were, you know, they were terrified of God's presence on the mountain. Now he's coming right in the middle of the camp. So the cloud of God's glory, it moves and it hovers over the tabernacle. And then it says, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it's, it's working, right? This is what, this was designed to do, it was designed to be a place where this powerful holy God could come 
and meet with his people. But there's a twist. Look at what happens in verse 35. So the glory has filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So there's a problem, right? What's the problem? They're supposed to meet with God here. God's here, but Moses can't get in. It says he can't get in because the glory of the Lord has filled the tabernacle. Well, the whole point is the glory of the Lord is gonna fill the tabernacle and then you go in and you meet with him. That's the whole point of the tent of meeting. But he can't do it. Moses can't go in because the glory of the Lord is in the tabernacle. You know what this reminds me of? I'm sure you all have seen the movie Home Alone. You've seen this before? For younger people, Cody, have you seen Home Alone? I feel like I feel like high school and middle school and college students these days know a lot more about kind of previous pop culture than, than I did. So anyway, so Home Alone, anybody not seen this movie? Okay, so in the movie Home Alone, there's this scene where he's about to go to the final battle, you know, where, where the, the bad guys, or I forget their names, the, the burglars are coming, and, you know, he's got all his traps set up, and he's... And, and it's, they, he knows they're coming that night. I don't remember how he knows they're coming that night, but he knows. And so he's got everything set up, and he, then he goes, he goes to church. Doesn't he go to church? Is that right? But he's, I think he's on the way to church. He's on the way to church, and he walks by this house. And remember, you know, Macaulay Culkin or whatever his name is. So his, he, the whole thing is that his family left him, and they, he got left behind, so he's home alone all by himself during Christmas. And first it's awesome, that's what I want, but then he starts to feel lonely, Right? So he's, he's missing his family, he's feeling scared and alone. He's walking by, he's walking down the street to church, and what does he see? Do y'all know this scene? He looks through the window, he sees that he walks by this house and he looks through the window and he sees this family, you know, grandparents and then parents and kids and nephews and cousins just running around, greeting each other, smiling, hugging each other, right? And, you, and the, the camera kind of cuts back and forth between that scene and then his face. And he's just kind of, he has this really kind of sad expression on his face. You know what I'm talking about? It's this idea that you can see what he is wanting is right in that house. He's literally on the other side of a window from it. He could literally go up to it and like put his hand on the window and touch it. But he can't get in. He can't get in. And that's kind of the way, that, that's what this is supposed to make us feel right here. The, the thing that we've been longing for, that God's been working to do, it's right here. It's right inside that tent. It's right on the other side of the side of that tent. But Moses can't get in. He can't get in. So the book of Exodus, it really ends with a question. And this is the question that we're supposed to be thinking, the question we're supposed to be asking. Well, what is that question? The question is, how can the sinful people get into the tent to be with their holy God? How can they get in? How can they get into the tent to fellowship with God the way they did back in the Garden of Eden? Well, there's a short answer to that question and there's a long answer, okay? The, do you want the short answer or the long answer? <laughs> I'm not very good at short answers, but I'll try. 
So the, the long answer, the long answer is, that's what the book of Leviticus is for, okay? The book of Leviticus, we read it and it's like, man, what's the deal with all these wear this, don't wear that, you know, eat this, don't eat that, like these types of fabrics and you can't trim your beard in a certain way and it just seems really, really tedious to us, right? But the book of Leviticus, for the people back then, they wouldn't have seen it as boring, they wouldn't have seen it as tedious. Not because they really cared about things like shellfish and things like, you know, boiling a, a, a goat in its mother's milk or whatever the kind of the strange things in there are. Not because they really cared so much about that, but because this is the instruction manual to get into God's house. There's a story in Leviticus 10. Again, Leviticus is, it, parts of it are kind of slow, but there's this one story that, um, that I, some people aren't aware of. This is in Leviticus 10. I don't know if you guys have heard this before, but I promise this is in there. You can go look at it. So, there's, there's these, two, these two young people, I don't know if they're teenagers or, or, or what, these two young people, one night they get drunk. If you all heard this story, they, they get drunk and they're basically just like, dude, you know what would be totally awesome? Like, bro, wouldn't it be totally awesome if we like went into the most holy place? And everyone's like, bro, let's do it. And so they do it and they die. <laughs> and they die, and they're just, they're just dead in there, and then God's basically kind of like, well, <laughs> do you want to try to not let that happen again? And yes. Are you going to listen to my instructions this time? Yes. And that's what the rest of the book of Leviticus is about, right? So it's kind of interesting. <laughs> but the, so the long answer is, that's what the book of Leviticus is about. How do the sinful people get into the tent without dying, all right? But the short answer, just to summarize, and this is what we're gonna kind of spend the rest of our time talking about today. The short answer, if you're gonna kind of, you know, like boil down the book of Leviticus into, into two points, how do you get into God's presence? Two things. First of all, you get in through a high priest, and second of all, you get in through blood. So you need two things. You need a high priest, and you need a blood sacrifice. Okay, go ahead and put the... Uh, Put the, the third diagram up there. Okay, can y'all see that? Okay, so um, this one's entitled Returning to, to not hashtag, to quotation marks, Eden. Because it's Eden, but it's kind of not Eden. And we'll talk about that in a second more. Okay, so turn with me in your Bibles to, while you're looking at that, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter nine. Because Hebrews chapter nine is talking about, is talking to, it's written to, it's addressing Jewish Christians who are having a crisis of faith. And the author of Hebrews is, he's talking about the tabernacle and he's using the idea of the tabernacle to help these Jewish disciples of Jesus to understand, to understand who Jesus is and what, the presence of Jesus means, means for our lives. So in Hebrews chapter nine, and we're gonna be looking at verses six through, through 10. Hebrews chapter nine, verses six through 10. So in the first five verses before this, he basically describes the tabernacle. He says, you know, they had the, the tent and the, the courtyard. And you remember you had the, like within the courtyard, you had the, the altar of, of, of the sacrifices of burnt offerings and you had the wash basin, then you had the, the holy place, then you had the, the most holy place and you had the menorah and you had the bread and you had the altar of incense and you had the, and you had the, the atonement cover, 
right? So he goes through all these things like I just did. <laughs> I could have read it, I guess, but I just said it. Um, and then in verse six, this is what he says. He says, these preparations having thus been made, well, which preparations? Well, the ones I just talked about, the ones we spent the last couple of weeks talking about. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly in to the first section performing their ritual duties. So remember you have the first section, if you're coming in through, you know, towards the west, you have, you first get the first section, and then you have the second section. The first section is the holy place, and the second section is the most holy place, right? So it says the priests perform their, regularly do, their regular duties by going into the first section, by going into the holy place, okay? So a priest is, we talked about this this summer, a priest is somebody who's designated by God to represent God on behalf of the people and then also to represent the people on behalf of God. That's what a priest is, okay? Now, the priest here, what they would do when it talks about their daily, their daily ritual duties, okay? So if you're a priest, this is, this is every day, okay, except for the Sabbath. This is your, your daily ritual. So they, they, would, they would come to the, the tabernacle courtyard. The first thing they would do is they would wash themselves. They, they wash their, their hands and they would wash their feet to symbolize we're cleansing ourselves because God is holy. We're cleansing ourselves to come into his presence. Okay, the first thing they do is they wash their hands and they wash their feet. And then they, they, and, and then they, they make a sacrifice. They take a lamb and twice a day, they do this every morning and then also every evening, so first thing in the morning, they get up, wash their hands and their feet. Then they, they take a lamb and they sacrifice it on the altar of, of burnt offerings. They sacrifice, they sacrifice the lamb and then they go into the first section. They go into the, the holy place and they tend to the lampstand. They change out the, the oil. They trim the wick. Um, they, every seven days, they, they, change, they exchange the bread of the presence. They will, um, they will burn fresh incense on the altar of incense. And then they, they go home, they eat lunch, and then when it's evening time, they come back and they do the whole thing again. So every morning, every evening, those are the priestly duties. But the thing is, they're able to get into the holy place, the first section, but not the second section, not the, whole, not the most holy place, all right? So they're still not right in God's presence. Well, how do you get into the most holy place? Well, look with me in verse seven. So the, the priests, they do their, their, regular, their regular ritual duties in the holy place in the first section, but into the second section, that is the holy of holies, the most holy place, where God's glory dwells, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay, so once a year, there would be what they called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You might have heard this, heard, heard this, this, uh, this phrase before, Yom Kippur, literally means the day of, of atonement. And atonement, this word atonement, it can mean to wipe, it can mean to cover, 
but the, the big idea behind atonement is God is wiping away his people's sins. He's covering over his people's sins. He's making a way for his people's sins to be dealt with so that they can live before him in his presence. So this is the day of atonement. One day a year, the high priest, so he's one of the priests, but he's the, he's the high priest. He's the, the most important priest. Only one person. One day, once a year, the high priest, on the day of atonement, he would come into the tabernacle courtyard and he'd go to the washing basin. But instead of just washing his, his feet and his hands, he would wash his entire body. So he, he, would, he would bathe his entire body, okay? Then he would take two animals. He would take a bull and he would take a goat. So usually it's, it's one lamb, but here it's, it's a bull and, and it's a goat. And he would offer the bull and the goat as a sacrifice to God on the altar of, of burnt offerings. And then he takes the blood of the bull and the goat, and he takes it with him, and he goes into the holy place. But he doesn't stop there. He goes right between the, the cherubim. The cherubims part. They usher him into God's throne room, and he takes the blood of the bull and the goat, and he puts it on the atonement cover, which is the, the, the atonement cover. Sometimes people call it the mercy seat, this is where when God's glory descends, this is, where it, this is where it rests. And so the high priest, once a year, he takes this blood from the bull and from the goat all the way into the most holy place. He offers it to God, and God sees that and forgives or he deals with the sins of his people so he can continue to live with them. Okay, so this is the day of atonement. Now, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound pretty good? I mean, before, there were the cherubim, flaming swords. If you try to get back to the tree of life, you die. That sounds pretty good. But what's the problem? The problem is, it's still not as good as the Garden of Eden, is it? Is it? Think about the difference between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. In the Garden of Eden, they were naked and unashamed, okay? And not just before each other, but also before God. In the Garden of Eden, they were walking with God. They were talking with God. They were living life every single day with God. But here, only one person, once a year, can come before God. So we talked, I told you last week how, you know, sometimes on, a, on, on my day off, I just love to love it when my when my three daughters, Valerie, Ruby, and Rose, just come and, and and pile on the couch, and we all just snuggle together. And we said that's what God wants to snuggle with us, right? God wants to be with us in an intimate, close way. He's not an absentee father, but this isn't really. If you think about it here, what's going on here? You know, one person once a year can kind of go in. It's not like snuggling on the couch with your dad. This is kind of like. Dad's in there working on his computer and like one day a year, one of us can like go say hi to him. <laughs> That's not quite as good, is it? 
that's not quite the same intimate picture that we get of, you know, snuggling on the couch, you know, kissing each other, telling each other stories, laughing, joking. It's not the same. And that's kind of what the Israelites are able to experience here with the tabernacle. One man, once a year, is able to go and say, okay, God, here's the blood, and spend a few minutes with God, and then that's it for the whole year. And then for the rest of the year, and then for everybody but him, throughout the whole year, everybody else is just like Macaulay Culkin and Home Alone. You know, looking in the window, seeing, ah, guess where God is? That's where the fullness of joy is. That's where the, that's where the pleasures, the eternal pleasures are, right in there. You know, what's the count? Up oh, 364 days till we can go in again. For everybody else, that's the way they are. And look at what it says in verses eight through 10 in Hebrews chapter nine. It says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Well, what does that mean? What that means is that the fact that in the tabernacle you have to go through the holy place, you have to offer all these sacrifices and you have the veil and you can only go past the veil once a year, one person, it shows that the way, it hasn't completely been opened yet. The way back to the tree of life, the way back to God's presence hasn't been fully opened yet, okay? And then it says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and with drink and with various, various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. So they're offering these sacrifices, they're offering this lamb, they're offering this bull for their sins. But nobody's fooled by that. Everybody, know, you know, that doesn't really deal with the guilt that they have. That doesn't really deal with the shame that's in their hearts. That doesn't really deal with the fear that they have when they think about the holy, powerful God and how sinful they are, that, that's not fooling anybody. Everybody knows this is just, it's not taking care of God's wrath for sins, it's just kind of delaying it. It can't perfect the consciences of the worshipers because it's only dealing with external things. If you look ahead in Hebrews chapter 10, verse four, it says it a lot more clearly. It, says, it just flat out says, it says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible, okay? So we're left with this question. Back in the Garden of Eden, they had that intimate relationship with God their snuggle on the couch relationship with God. And now they have the, you know, one of us can go say hi to dad once a year relationship with God. It's still not good enough, is it? Well, how are they gonna get back to the way it was back in the Garden of Eden? And that is a big question. That's a big question, isn't it? Because here they've done exactly what God has told them to do. They've gone through all the steps. They've painstakingly arranged this tent with all of the furniture and all of the layout exactly the way God 
has told him to, and he said, this is how I'm coming back to live with you. And all that gets them is one guy, once a year, goes in and says hi to God. They're making the sacrifice, they've got the high priests all decked out, they've got the, the tabernacles perfectly constructed. One guy, once a year, gets to spend a few minutes with God. So what are we gonna do? And it leaves you with this question, is it possible that there could be a better tabernacle? And you think that's impossible, I mean, this is just, we use all of the best stuff, and trust me, we did it exactly the way God said on the mountain, we didn't deviate at all, you know, we didn't freeze the hell this at all, we did exactly the way God said on the mountain, there's no way, how could there be a better tabernacle than this? How could there be a better tabernacle than this? Or maybe we'd have a better high priest. Is it possible that we could have a better high priest than Aaron or than Moses? But then you think, no, I mean, if, Mo if Moses can't get in, if the high priest Aaron, if he can, I mean, he's, these are some of the, these are some righteous guys. These are some really good people. If, they, if all they can do is one guy once a year for a few minutes, how could you ever find, what would they have to be like to have a better high priest than Moses and Aaron? Or what about a better sacrifice? Remember we said, how do you get into God's presence? Through a high priest and through a blood sacrifice. I mean, this is a, they would pick the, the finest bull, the finest goat, the finest lamb, and offer these as, as sacrifices. And we know God's forbidden human sacrifice, right? So, I mean, what, 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 what sacrifice could we possibly offer that's gonna be more powerful than the blood, the blood of the bulls and the goats? Where would we ever be able to find a better tabernacle a better high priest, or a better sacrifice? Well, as you think about these questions, you're starting to understand what Christmas is about, right? Because do we have a better tabernacle? Do we have a better high priest? Do we have a better, a better sacrifice? Christmas is about, the answer to that question is, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And the reason Christmas is such a big deal, it's not just a cool story. It's not just, wow, you know, virgin had a baby. That was crazy. You know, he's, he, he, can, he can do some miracles. Wow, great. That's not the point. The point is, 2,000 years ago, a better tabernacle came, a better high priest came, and a better sacrifice came. And they were all one person. And when we start to understand that, I don't know, as we've been singing these songs, singing this song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and I'll go ahead and invite the choir to come up. Um, but for the past three weeks, we, we've been singing this song. It's this beautiful song, this beautiful hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Why is Jesus so expected? Well, this is why. Okay, this is why. And as the choir's coming up, I, I just wanna read the lyrics of this song, and, and think about these. Think about Jesus and how Jesus is the answer to the question, how can sinful people once again snuggle with their heavenly father on the couch? 
This is what it says. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins and fears release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. God, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for coming. Thank you for not settling for one man one, one day a year, spending a few minutes with you. God, I, I pray that you would help us all to experience the joy of your presence and the longing for what we're gonna experience one day when we're back with you, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.